continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark this morning. Our scripture lesson is Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Listen now for God's Word to you. Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way He asked His disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered Him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all of this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, for them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So the very first date that Heather and I went on that I didn't know was a date because I'm that dense um, was to a movie. And since then, Heather and I have always enjoyed going to the movies. It's been one of the most important parts of our relationship, um, something that we haven't been able to do a whole lot lately because of COVID and having young children and all of that. So, but whenever we get a chance to go to a movie, to the th- actual theater, it's always a special occasion for us. And whenever anyone goes to the movie theater, before the the main attraction starts, there's always like 15 or 20 minutes of trailers, right, of upcoming attractions. And movie trailers have really become an industry unto themselves. They are kind of their own sort of art form. Uh, They make millions of dollars, and sometimes they're more popular than the movie themselves. Uh, But trailers have been around for a long time. They have been around since that transition from silent films to films that had sound to them, Um, And in those earliest days of movie trailers, they had big, bold letters on them with over-the-top superlatives trying to get people to come and see the movie. And then in the 70s and 80s, you had this transition to what we can all probably recognize as the Voice of God movie trailer. Uh, The 1975 trailer for the movie Jaws is a very good example of the Voice of God movie trailer. Uh, Then in the 1990s, with the rise of blockbusters, you had uh, the the trailers took on kind of the form of a mini-movie. They had sort of their own plot to them. But nowadays, movie trailers are all about aesthetics. And the question with every movie trailer is, how much do you reveal? How much of the plot do you tell somebody? And and sometimes movie trailers reveal just enough of the plot to help tell someone what the movie's about, to get them interested, especially if they don't know anything about the movie. Other times, it's about teasing a movie, especially one that has been long anticipated, waiting for it to arrive in theaters. It's getting people excited for it's finally being uh, released. But, but modern audiences tend towards ambiguity these days. 
They want to know as little of the plot as possible. They want to wait until they get to the theater to actually see uh, the movie. Now, whenever we watch movie trailers, whenever Heather and I watch movie trailers in the theater, we do this sort of odd, peculiar thing that maybe other people do as well. You already know what I'm talking about. We lean over to each other and we give our assessment of the trailer and whether or not it's a movie we actually want to go and see. Uh, in the old days, when we were going to the movies regularly, it was a question of, is this a movie we want to come out to the theater to see, to spend all that money on tickets and popcorn and soda and candy? Or is it a movie we want to wait until it's released? Or is it a movie we never want to see? Based off of the trailer, is this a film we actually want to see? And this morning, we get a sort of movie trailer of sorts from Jesus, a prediction of upcoming events. Uh, that Jesus is traveling with his disciples and everybody's got their popcorn and their soda, the lights dim, and Jesus tells them about what's going to happen. And he says to them that he is going to Jerusalem, where he is going to experience incredible amounts of suffering. He is going to be rejected by the, the chief priests, the leaders, the powers that be. He's going to be crucified, die, and then three days later he's going to rise from the dead. Um, but first, there is all of this suffering that he has to undergo. Now, this is the first of Jesus' predictions of his coming death. There are, are three of them in the Gospel of Mark. This marks a, a seismic shift in this Gospel, that Jesus' ministry in Galilee is now essentially over. He turns his entire focus, his entire uh, purpose, his entire mission and ministry towards Jerusalem and this collision course with the powers uh, that be. And so the question then for his disciples who are receiving this movie trailer of sorts, is this something that they're going to want to participate in? Do they want to join Jesus in what he's predicting for them? And their response is quick and forceful. Yeah, Peter, who loves the taste of his own foot, who's always the spokesman for the other disciples, takes Jesus aside by the arm and he rebukes Jesus. Peter knows that this is not a movie that anybody wants to see. This is not a movie that people are going to wait in line to, to see, a Messiah who is crucified and killed. And really, why should Peter be anticipating this? There's nothing at this point in the gospel that has indicated that this is where Jesus is headed, that Jesus has widespread populist appeal in Galilee. And why should Peter expect that things are going to change at this point? And what's more, we just heard that that Peter and the other disciples made a confession of faith about who Jesus is, the first confession of faith in history, that they're, they're traveling along and Jesus stops and asks them, who do other people say that I am? And they say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Some say that uh, you're one of the prophets of long ago. Some say that you're Elijah. But then he turns to them and says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter turns and looks at his other companions and wonders, should we tell Jesus all the things we've been talking about while he's not around, all the things we've been wondering about him, the things perhaps that they've been wondering about since Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and they say to each other, who then is this who even the winds and the waves obey him? And his fellow companions give him the nod, and, he, and so he finally turns to Jesus and says, you are the Messiah, the first confession of faith in church history, Jesus as the Messiah. The Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek, uh, a reminder that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Um, it is a signifier of the title, Messiah, the Anointed One. 
the one who is coming into the world to make all things new, uh, to make all things new, that Jesus is the Messiah. It's the first confession of faith. And now, uh, but then something very peculiar happens here, right? Something very interesting. They make this confession, and then Jesus says to them, don't say anything to anybody. It actually says, Jesus sternly ordered them to not say anything to anybody else. And this is something that happens a lot in the Gospel of Mark. There'll be a, a miracle where Jesus heals somebody, like the, the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. And after that happens, Jesus says to the family, shh, don't tell anybody what happened here. I don't know about you. If that happened to me, I'm telling everybody I know. Or when Jesus encounters the demons, the demons will, will shout out and they'll say, we know who you are, Holy One of God, and, and Jesus is quick to silence them. He moves as fast as possible to make them quiet. There's a, a, a line in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark where, where Jesus, it says that Jesus would not allow the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And here, as the disciples make this confession, of course, Jesus tells them to be quiet. And it seems maybe strange to us that Jesus does this in the gospel. Isn't that what the gospels are all about? Isn't it about telling us who Jesus is? And yet, in the gospel of Mark, it's like some closely guarded state secret. Jesus doesn't want anybody to know who he is, at least not right away. There's this swearing to secrecy. And what scholars call this in the gospel of Mark is the messianic secret, the keeping of Jesus' identity as the Messiah, as the Christ, a secret. And it's sort of an odd thing that Mark includes this in his gospel because we as the readers of his gospel know from the very first line who Jesus is. The very first sentence of the gospel says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There it is in black and white for us. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, he is the Son of God. But what remains hidden from us throughout the gospel is what sort of Messiah is Jesus going to be? That's the question in everybody's mind. Jesus lives at this time of great expectations, this great anticipation for the arrival of God's anointed one. And there are all sorts of ideas about what the Messiah is going to look like and what the Messiah is going to do. Who is the Messiah going to be? Well, it depends on who you ask. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, this collection of writings from the 3rd century B.C. to the 1st century A.D., which really kind of provide a foundation of the worldview in which Jesus lived in, they give us a, a clue as to some of the things that people were looking for when it came to the Messiah. Uh, some people didn't think about the Messiah at all. They were content to simply go on with their lives, to live their lives as, as normal as usual, to go to work, raise their families, to have fun, whatever it was. But then there were others who thought about the Messiah sort of as a, a military hero, a conquering hero, one who looked like King David of old or Judas Maccabee, someone who would overthrow the Roman occupation. Then there were others who thought of the Messiah as a, a new high priest, someone who would replace the corrupt establishment in the temple in Jerusalem. Others thought of the Messiah as an ordinary human being who would do ordinary human things. And still others thought of the Messiah as one who was endowed with great powers from God. They have all of these different expectations of what the Messiah was going to look like. 
But what nobody expected is what Jesus says to his disciples there, that the Messiah was going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified by the Romans. No one expected that. And so maybe it can give us a little bit of understanding for poor Peter who loves the taste of his own foot. That nothing Jesus says, they've just made this great confession of Jesus as the Messiah and he confirms it. But then he gives them very contradictory information. Tells them that the Messiah is going to look in a way that no one expected the Messiah to look. How did the disciples expect Jesus to be the Messiah? What did they expect from him? That's left for us to sort of speculate a little bit about, but I think their location and the point where they make this confession gives us maybe a little bit of a clue. That they're traveling through the town of Caesarea Philippi, a town that's on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. And that name denotes two very powerful rulers in the Roman Empire, Philippi, denoting King Philip, the the ruler, the puppet king of that region, uh, of one of Herod the Great's sons, that region where Jesus and his disciples are. And the other being Caesarea, a reference to Caesar Augustus, who the Romans proclaimed as the divine son of God and the savior of the world. Where have I heard that before? These two powerful rulers who had power and armies at their disposal, that this confession of Jesus as the Messiah comes in the shadow of other kings. And so I imagine that Peter and the other disciples are imagining, expecting a ruler who will overthrow Roman occupation, a violent Messiah, a war hero Messiah, a national hero Messiah. Several years ago now, Saturday Night Live had a uh, a parody trailer for a movie called Jesus Uncrossed. Um, and it was supposed to be a parody of Quentin Tarantino's movie Django Unchained. Um, and in typical Saturday Night Live fashion, it was completely irreverent and sacrilegious, and, but it was good satire because I think it speaks a level of truth. Uh, and so Jesus is not the, the meek, mild, loving, forgiving savior in this imagined parody. This is Jesus post-resurrection with a cross slung to his back, ready to enact some vengeance. It looks every bit like a Quentin Tarantino movie, if you're familiar with his movies. Jesus, the violent, conquering Messiah. I think that this is what Peter and the disciples are looking for. This is what they want. This is the Messiah they want. This is the God they want. And when Jesus tells them otherwise, Peter takes him aside and he rebukes him. And it leaves me with a question. It leaves me wondering, are there times and places in my own life, in our own lives, where we rebuke Jesus, so to speak? Not in some literal sense where we take Jesus by the arm and take him into some back room and tell him exactly how upset we were with what he said. But do we rebuke him in a way that we want to make him more palatable, more convenient, more acceptable to us, to to bring him in line with our own images and our own understandings of who he ought to be? Because the truth is, I don't think the crucified Messiah is one that we still want. It's a hard image for us to accept. It's not the Messiah we want. It's not the God that we want. But perhaps it's the God that we need. Perhaps it's the Messiah we need. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great resistor to the Nazis, once said, only the suffering God can help. 
And riffing off of that statement, I would say that only the suffering Messiah can help. It is only the suffering Messiah, the one who walks all the way to the cross, who can reveal to us the depth of God's love for us, a love that endures even the pain and the suffering of the cross, who refuses to let us go. It is only the suffering Messiah who can save us and pull us out of that that vortex of vengeance and retribution and help us to live at peace with one another. It is only the, the suffering Messiah who can expose to us all of the injustice and the oppression of the world that we live in and help us to imagine and live in a different world. It is only the suffering Messiah who, bearing the cross, can finally rid us of those images of a vengeful, angry God and realize that in every moment in our lives, at every shortcoming, in every moment of darkness, there is always grace. There's a reason why Mark keeps this a secret, keeps it hidden from us, that we only know who Jesus is fully until we get to the cross, until we get to that moment where Jesus pours his life out in love and grace for the world around us for you, for me, and for all people. may not be the God that we want. may not be the God we expected, but it is the God that we need. The God who asks us to take up our cross and to follow him. Follow him all the way to Calvary until that moment where God's love and grace and forgiveness and justice are finally revealed in all of its fullness. May we have the courage to take up our cross and follow that crucified Savior. Amen.